KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. An hours-long county supervisor's meeting ends with threats. This week's meeting just seemed to reach a pitch that almost had a little bit of a threatening tone to it. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego Unified is offering transitional kindergarten. We said the urgency is now. We want our students, we want our families to have this experience and this opportunity in our schools now. And a look at how the pandemic has changed traffic and rush hour. Plus, our summer music series continues with Latin jazz. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Earlier this week, a San Diego County Supervisor's meeting quickly deteriorated over increasing local mandates that would require masking and proof of vaccination or regular testing in schools, workplaces, and healthcare facilities. More than 100 speakers from across the county delivered scathing and often profanity-laced testimony, with much of the rhetoric pointed at Chair Nathan Fletcher. Here's San Diego resident Brittany Mayer. We are done. The consent of the governor is removed. We will not comply. We do not consent. Nathan Fletcher, you are on notice. We will constitutionally remove all petty tyrants you, beginning ma'am. now. San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Paul Sisson has been covering the fallout from the meeting. He joins me now with more. Paul, welcome back again to the program. Nice to be here. Can you give us a quick recap of the kind of responses we were hearing from county residents at this meeting? Gosh, you know, it it really ranged, uh, but I'd say a lot of it was very, very emotional. You know, it's just seeming like they've reached an inflection point. I mean, These county meetings that happen every two weeks, uh, they have for a long time included folks who have been unhappy with pretty much all aspects of the county, state, and federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But this week's meeting just seemed to reach a pitch that I haven't really seen before where, uh, you know, it it almost had a little bit of a threatening tone to it. You know, how did Chair Fletcher end up being the target of so much vitriol over uh, or during this meeting? Well, uh, he is the board chair, and he has uh, chaired the um, the Board of Supervisors COVID committee. So he has really been the face of uh, of the region's COVID response. As you mentioned, some of the comments made toward Fletcher are basically tantamount to threats of violence, something that he's been dealing with for the past year and a half. How has he responded to this? Well, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, he's uh, sat there and taken it. Um, it certainly uh, was what happened uh, on Tuesday. Uh, if you watched all the way through, uh, you know, they took all comers uh, and, and listened for hours as people uh, railed against them, uh, often in, in somewhat personal uh, ways. Um, and and then uh, at the end, uh, you know, insisted on, on 
having his say and saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with what my experts are telling me and, uh, and I'm not going to uh, change my stance on, on the things we're doing based on, on threats. Uh, you know, I, I thought uh, just as a, as a, as an observer that it, it was a relatively um, calm response to so much vitriol. As we've heard, much of the negative public comment was directed towards Fletcher and other county supervisors. Did anyone show up to this meeting in support of increased masking and vaccination mandates? I didn't notice anyone who showed up in person, but there were several callers. You can call into these meetings and and make comments that way as well. And for a long time, that was the only way that you could make comments when when they weren't having these meetings uh, at the county administration building uh, and allowing visitors to come in in person. Uh, and so there were several that called in in support of these mandates and even, even said that they should go further uh, than they already have, uh, especially around the notion of, uh, you know, businesses uh, requiring proof of vaccination to uh, serve patrons uh, and in, in regards to even stronger uh, masking and vaccination uh, proof guidelines. So, so there was there was some support, but I'd say it was definitely overwhelmed uh, by the negative reaction. What does this meeting tell us about how polarized discussion between medical facts and misinformation about the pandemic um, has become? I mean, I think it can be a little a little misleading, perhaps. Uh, you know, if you look if you look at the vaccination numbers for San Diego County, you'll see that over seventy percent of people who live here, of the three point three million people who live here, uh, have had both of their uh, doses uh, of one mRNA vaccine or the other. Um, and so, a hundred people showing up at a public meeting, uh, you know, while they are very vocal and and um, and forceful, uh, you know, if you think about the the overall um, population of San Diego County and you look at the vaccination numbers, it, it's pretty clear that they're in the minority. You know, to that point, we often hear about how vaccination rates in the county have plateaued since the initial push. Is it fair to say that some of the reasoning behind that is owed to the kind of rhetoric we saw on display at this meeting? Or is this more of a minority, as you mentioned, a minority sentiment within the county? You know, it's really hard to know for sure. The county did some polling recently asking about different motivations for not getting vaccinated. Uh, and, and that polling really made it clear that that it's all across the board. Some people just haven't gotten around to it, don't feel a lot of urgency. Uh, some folks are concerned about side effects. Uh, some folks are concerned about uh, the fact that vaccines don't yet have uh, full FDA approval, you know, and, and some fact, some folks uh, go fur- further down the line uh, towards some of the sentiments that were expressed on Tuesday, like believing that the entire pandemic is a hoax. Uh, so, so I think it runs the gamut, and it's it's hard to um, say that it this is a homogenous group. It's it's a it's a uh, it's varied in its reasoning. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. San Diego Unified will be opening its school year to some of its youngest students ever 
this semester. The district is offering transitional kindergarten to children who turn four by September 1st. San Diego Unified is starting the program several years before a new state law mandates this kind of early education in public schools across the state. Although district officials don't know exactly how many children might qualify for the program, 2,800 transitional kindergarten spots have been made available next month, with more opening up next school year. Joining me is Stephanie Siminski. She is Director of Early Childhood Programs for San Diego Unified. And Stephanie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What is transitional kindergarten? Is it different from regular kindergarten? Transitional kindergarten is different from regular kindergarten in the sense of transitional kindergarten focuses on and embraces a perfect blend. The curriculum is in alignment between the California Preschool Learning Foundations and the Kindergarten Common Core State Standards. And because of this alignment, the instructional and the physical conditions are designed with purpose. And the learning is pleasurable, challenging, active, self-motivated, and process-oriented for our children. We blend in more focused, hands-on learning experiences and where students are free to engage in a flexible manner. Um, They learn through literacy blocks, through interactive writing blocks, um, independent setters, and play-based activities. And another focus in transitional kindergarten is that very special foundational piece, that social-emotional piece where they learn to ask questions, um, where it's more inquiry and peer interactions, and where the conditions create opportunities for discovery, exploration, and problem-solving where students are more active through movement and play and different visual arts. Does transitional kindergarten prepare young kids for regular kindergarten and beyond? It absolutely prepares students to go to first grade. So one of the things you would see in this classroom is students learning routine and transition skills. And so that when they're entering kindergarten, they know how to sit in their chair. They know how to listen to the teacher. They know how to raise their hand when they have a question. And they know how to be kind and interactive with their friends. And so that sets them up on on a trajectory for success. So based on that developmental continuum, when they enter kindergarten, they're ready for the to learn those foundational learning skills um, because they have that foundational piece already taken care of. The state plans to roll out universal transitional kindergarten in 2025. What's the reason that San Diego Unified is launching it now? So San Diego Unified School District has always held the belief and value system that we strive to offer our families full day learning and care aligned to the elementary schedule where we want to put our students on this continuum of learning where they start at their elementary school. They could essentially start at age three and go all the way up to fifth grade into a feeder pattern within the district where they're familiar with their elementary school, where they're with their siblings, um, where working families can send their child to have a full day learning experiences that's preparing them with this base for future experiences and To be honest, we were thrilled when Universal Transitional Kindergarten was um, brought forth by the governor, and um, we said the urgency is now. We want our students, we want our families to have this experience and this opportunity in our schools now. 
Can you give us a sense of how transitional kindergarten will work this semester at San Diego Unified? Like when does the day start for these kids and when does it end? So each school, each classroom is on the school schedule. So for example, if the school starts at 810 with a release time of 215, the students enter school just as um, all other students on the campus. They greet their teachers at the door. There's time for independent centers. There's um, mathematic blocks, early literacy blocks. They play recess. They have lunch, just like what you are familiar with with kindergarten or first grade or second grade schedules. There's two teachers in the classroom. And so what that allows is we have a TK teacher and an ECE teacher. So those skill sets and that knowledge and base behind a child's developmental and academic learning is is flexible within that setting. You can have small group instruction, you can have whole group instruction or one-on-one observational time where um, the teacher could really understand what that student needs in the progress that they're making. And so that's what you would see in the classroom. With a one to 12 ratio, um, our classrooms are under the conditions and under the parameters that these students have the opportunity to thrive. And how many schools in the San Diego Unified District are rolling out this program this fall? Our initial launch for this fall is 54 locations. And with the understanding that early learning programs tracks and monitors all interests, all um, enrollment trends daily so that we are able to adapt to any of our community needs and expand if necessary. But over the course of the next two years, we will roll it into the entire district. And out of the estimated 2,800 seats, are there any TK spots left? As we expand, we are able to add more seats. Um, That's something we've always taken very seriously and very uh, monitor very closely. And so if our families need seats and we need to reorganize or realign the program to, to where the students are and where we need a program, then that's what we work to do. Have early childhood educators been hoping that something like transitional kindergarten would be added to the school curriculum? The workforce is so wonderful, and there's such high-quality educators within our program. And one thing that has worked out so well is that vertical articulation, where our ECE teachers, our TK teachers, and our kindergarten teachers are able to have the time to collaborate, to communicate, and really talk about that developmental progress from age three by sharing data and progress all the way up to first grade, where teachers have conversations, where they have guided discussions around what what our students need and the assessments that they have. And so by having the TK teacher with the additional ECE units and the ECE teacher understanding that child development foundation, the perfect blend and collaborative model is built to support the students. I've been speaking with Stephanie Saminski. She is Director of Early Childhood Programs for San Diego Unified. Stephanie, thank you. Thank you so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. 
One small silver lining at the pandemic start was the ease of driving on the roads and highways. No traffic, no congestion, no riding the brakes. Drive time from point A to point B was cut in half. But that's changed now. Rush hour has crept back into the roadways, and it's so unpredictable. So what's happening and why? KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen gets to the bottom of it in his latest report, How Remote Working Has Changed San Diego Rush Hour. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks. So what ways have you found that traffic patterns changed between pre-pandemic and now? Well, I spoke with a company called Streetlight Data, which analyzes cell phone location data and other data from sources like the trucking industry. And they've compared travel habits in 2019 before the pandemic to 2021. And what they have found is that the morning rush hour is a lot lighter. There are fewer cars on the road. There are not as many people who are driving in the morning. After the morning peak, however, um, before the pandemic, it used to drop off quite a bit uh, because, you know, people were at their jobs. Instead, what's changed is traffic is a little bit more consistent throughout the day. So there's less of a, uh, a gap between the morning and the afternoon rush hour. And then the afternoon peak actually starts a little bit earlier. And there are, um, as a share of the people who are driving on the road, more of them are, are taking their trips in the afternoon. So the assumption is that um, many of the people who are working for from home now have a lot more flexibility. They can run errands uh, in the middle of the day or in the afternoon, and maybe right after work, after they've been sitting in their you know homes uh, in front of a computer for a while, they might be taking more discretionary trips, leisure trips to the park or the grocery store or wherever. Um, and that's why we're seeing more uh, people uh, drive in the afternoons as a share of all of those who are driving. There's a lot of talk about getting cars off the road to lower greenhouse gas emissions. Many people thought work from home options would help in that effort, but it doesn't seem that there are enough employers offering that here in San Diego. So what other efforts are there? Yeah, so right now, uh, the San Diego Association of Governments, SANDAG, is putting together its long-term regional transportation plan. And um, the pandemic actually hit in the middle of that planning process. Um, earlier on in the pandemic, there were some local politicians who were really pushing this idea that remote working would just solve all of our greenhouse gas emission problems. And we don't need to spend all of this money building out our public transit network. Uh, the problem with that is, um, first of all, we don't really know to what extent working from home will stick around after the pandemic. Um, we've already seen, you know, some offices going back to uh, in-person work. And uh, when you look at the numbers, the impact of, of remote working on greenhouse gas emissions and on vehicle travel is pretty minimal, especially as we're considering those factors we've already talked about. More people taking discretionary trips and, uh, you know, more car trips just to get out of the house. The other factor here that's very important is more people are, are ordering things delivered to their homes, more e-commerce um, as they're, you know, shifting away from brick and mortar stores. So that's also adding a surprising amount of traffic to the roads. Hmm. You know, in your report, you mentioned that it doesn't take a dramatic reduction in cars on the highway to reduce congestion. What's the method behind that madness? Well, traffic engineers know that there's some kind of threshold where 
uh, you know, you have a decent number of cars on the road or on the highway, but they're still able to travel fairly quickly and efficiently. At some point, when you start adding more and more cars, that turns into gridlock or, or congestion. We don't necessarily have to go back to the situation in April and May of 2020, where the roads and the freeways were almost eerily empty. Um, by the way, that also caused a lot of speeding. It was it was nice, you know, if you if you could if you needed to get somewhere quickly, but there were a lot of people who kind of took that liberty of empty roads and, and freeways to just go um, way faster than they should have. Um, but right now. Now, uh, highways and, and roads might look fairly busy, but the speeds are actually pretty reasonable. So last month, Sandag measured that um, car travel on the freeways was down only by about 9%. We're not that far from where we were before the pandemic, but the average speeds on the freeways, you know, at the spots that they measured, was 61 miles per hour. And compare that to before the pandemic, it was about 50. So we have a decent number of cars on the road now, but they're not being slowed down quite quite as much as, as they were before. And so if governments uh, and, you know, if local and state governments can keep those cars off of the road, you know, before we reach that threshold where it turns into gridlock, then travel times and, and speeds can s- stay pretty reasonable. So moving forward, how does this all affect Sandag's ability to plan for transportation in both the short and long term? So Sandag is trying to make its uh, planning process for, you know, uh, decades into the future, what our transportation network will look like, um, very data driven. And it's looking at a lot of these traffic patterns and, um, you know, when congestion happens, when uh, the peak rush hour is. It's also looking at greenhouse gas uh, emissions and all of these questions around equity and transportation justice. And a lot of the projects that they had on the books where they were widening freeways, adding lanes to, you know, accommodate more travel, those projects are now on the chopping block. First of all, there's a mountain of evidence um, showing that widening freeways doesn't actually reduce congestion or traffic delays in the long term. It actually just encourages more people to drive and you might end up with even worse traffic than before you widen that freeway. And there are many examples in L.A. County of that happening, uh, San Diego as well. Um, But perhaps they can accomplish this goal of reducing traffic congestion by other means, certainly less expensive means. It costs quite a bit of of money to widen a freeway, but also um, ways that they can have less impact on the environment and um, actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions rather than increasing them. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jade. As wildfires continue to scorch countless acres across the state, the dangers of smoke inhalation are becoming more pronounced for many Californians. Researchers have long known that wildfire smoke can make people more vulnerable to severe lung infection, but a new study from Harvard estimates that inhaling wildfire smoke contributed to the deaths of hundreds of Californians due to COVID-19 last year. The California Report's Farida Javala romero has more. On September 9, 2020, more than two dozen wildfires burned throughout California, including some of the largest in state history. And in the Bay Area, the skies turned so hazy, people couldn't see the sun during the day. It just felt scary. You know, that day I remember, like, it looked different, like dark, reddish. Susana Villanueva shows me a photo of her sister, Maribel, at the home where they lived together in Oakland. This is her. 
Right, I think this was for my mom's birthday right here, and she's right here. And this is Susana remembers her sister started coughing during those smoke-filled days last September. Air pollution skyrocketed, but Maribel kept going to work at a daycare. She walked and took the bus, wearing only a cloth mask. You know, I do remember her saying, you know, before we even knew that she had COVID, she said, oh, you know, she felt cold-like symptoms, and um, she said, oh, you know, I think it was the smoke that really affected me, and that's why I have this cough. Maribel's symptoms got worse. She died from COVID in early October. She was 46 years old and a single mom. She left behind a young son. Definitely there's, there's times where, you know, I mean, if I miss my sister, I'm pretty sure he misses his mom. Alameda County, where Maribel Villanueva lived, saw one of the biggest spikes in COVID-19 deaths linked to the smoke last year, according to a new study published in the journal Science Advances. Researchers found that higher levels of air pollution from western wildfires amplified COVID-19 cases and deaths in several counties in Oregon, Washington, and California. This study, for the first time, I think, to make the clear link between climate change, and the pandemic. Francesca Dominici is a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and one of the study's authors. The drought and heat are a major driver of larger wildfires in the state. These megafires emit toxic particles that can travel thousands of miles. Wildfire exposure and COVID are actually really dangerous com combination together. Wildfire smoke can hurt the immune system and its response and make people more prone to lung infections, including from COVID-19. People can protect themselves from the smoke by staying indoors with windows and doors shut. But that's not an option for people who have to work outside their home, especially in low-income communities of color. John Balms is a pulmonologist at the University of California, San Francisco. They're also at greater risk for uh, COVID-19. So it's an environmental justice issue that, you know, our society should be dealing with. He thinks local governments should do more to provide N95 masks and portable air filters to lower-income families, especially essential workers, like Maribel Villanueva, the daycare worker who died in October. Her sister says they don't know for sure if the smoke made her COVID symptoms worse, but Maribel didn't have an air filter at home or an N95. After Maribel's funeral, Susana took custody of Maribel's son. He just turned 11. She tells him, You know, I will never be able to replace your mom, but I'm here, we love you. I want you to know that we care for you. So just taking it one day at a time. One day at a time, but she knows they'll miss her forever. That was Farida Javala Romero for the California Report. The VA spends more than $13 billion a year on educational benefits for veterans, and the agency has a new way to help ensure those who use the money to enroll in college will succeed. It's partnering with a nonprofit group called the Warrior Scholar Project that runs academic boot camps. Jay Price reports for the American Homefront. Yeah, we'll just create like a working draft 
implementing some of the easy changes from last night. About a dozen veterans and active duty troops in a University of North Carolina classroom listen intently as Hillary Lithgow, an associate professor of English, helps them refine the essays they've been writing on the philosophical underpinnings of American democracy. And we're going to fit in just the last couple of pieces about citations, titles, Right up front is Master Gunnery Sergeant Eric Gonzalez, tattooed and heavily muscled. He's been in the Marine Corps for 23 years. Later, during a break, Gonzalez says when he retires from the Corps in a few years, he wants to enroll in a four-year college to become a physical therapist. The Marine Corps has given me the work ethic. I just want to find different ways to use those tools that I've been given. That's why he signed up for the boot camp and made the drive from Camp Lejeune. And that distance wasn't just measured in miles. The gulf between the distinctive cultures of the military and academia can be daunting for veterans who may not have been in a classroom for decades and who worry how they'll fit in among classmates who might be the same age as their children. One of the project's goals is to bridge that gap. The encouragement that they give, like, you know, being 41-year-old student, you know, going to college, you know, I'm a little hesitant to ask questions because I don't want to say something dumb or feel embarrassed or already go to the stereotype as a big dumb Marine. About 1,600 veterans and troops transitioning out of service have used the boot camps. About 90% of them have graduated or are on track to. 21 colleges and universities host boot camps, including the likes of Harvard, Yale, and Williams. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, many are online for now, but when done in person, the host institutions provide the classrooms, meals, and housing, and the Warrior Scholar Project, which is donor-funded, covers the rest. The VA is partnering with the program, hoping to improve the return on the higher education benefits it gives veterans. This is a benefit that they've earned um, and they, they worked hard for, and we want to make sure that if there are available resources to them uh, that's out there that could help them to set them up for success, we want to be a part of that. Charmaine Bogue is Executive Director of Education Service for the Veterans Benefits Administration. The new partnership means the VA will help get the word out to veterans about the Warrior Scholar Project. The boot camps center around humanities, especially skills in analytical reading and academic writing, and have sessions on transitioning to academic life. Some also include a focus on business or science and math. Lithgow, the professor teaching the UNC boot camp writing workshop, has worked with the project since 2015. There are a lot of reasons why I do it. The main reason is that it's what teaching is supposed to be. You know, you have a classroom full of really motivated students who are just all they want to do is learn and do better. It's what you would hope for in every classroom, but you don't always get. Gonzalez, the Marine Master Gunnery Sergeant, has had college courses before and said he did well, but sometimes found his approach to the work grueling. But the boot camp, he says, has helped. The first couple of nights he tackled assignments the way he does in the Marine Corps, going over something repeatedly until he's figured it out thoroughly. That worked, but kept him up till 2 a.m. Then the lessons started to sink in. With the tips they gave through the analytical reading, I'm doing the same quality of work in a third of the time. So just those little things that the professor has gone over, it's awesome. Like the light bulb went off, I'm like, wow, okay. Okay, meaning now he feels ready, not just for getting through college, but doing well at it. I'm Jay Price reporting.
This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego artists, musicians, and foodies are mourning the loss of a great this week. Matt Hoyt, the co-founder and co-owner of Starlight Restaurant in Midtown, passed away this weekend after a brief battle with an aggressive illness. He was just 45. The cross-section of Matt Hoyt's impact on San Diego is immeasurable, from his absurdist film Antarctic Duh to his green screen talk show to the music videos he made for bands like Pinback and the beloved restaurant Starlight. He touched many lives. KPBS arts editor Julia Dixon-Evans asked several colleagues, artists, musicians, and community members to share their remembrances. We start with musician Steve Poltz. He was like a, such a large presence. I was just with him like a month ago, and he was in fine form. And we hung out for a couple of hours at Starlight, which was a restaurant we had owned together. Like Matt could discuss music and then go right from there to interest rates to um, lumber prices. If he was talking to you, he wasn't looking around like sometimes you talk to people and they're kind of looking behind them. You know what I mean? They're always got a million things going on. Like he was focused, like eagle eye focused when he would talk to you and you felt like you were the only one there in the room. Hi, my name is Tim Mays. Um, I'm most recently a business partner with Matt at Starlight. Uh, we go way, way back. I, I first met Matt back in the early 90s when he was in a band called Turkey Mallet. And uh, we used to book them at the Casbah. They were they were kind of a ska band, which if you know Matt now, you would kind of like, well, that's kind of odd that he was in a ska band back then, but that's what it was. He was the smartest guy I know and the funniest guy I know. And it was a major, major shock to my my system, my wife's, a million people that we all knew together for so many years who were all uh, part of various different communities in town, the food community, the the craft cocktail segment, the music, art, comedy, film. Matt was involved in all that stuff, and he was good at all of it. This is Catherine Canjo, the David C. Copley Director and CEO of the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. In 2010, Matt Hoyt was featured in MCASD's exhibition of New San Diego Art, and I remember being dazzled by the force of the installation he created with Jason Sherry. It reflected an energy and a complexity that turned out to be matched by the artist himself. His expansive interests, art, food, music, film, crossed boundaries and formed new connections. He connected us, and his exuberance, wit, and curiosity will be sorely missed by all. My name is Jason Sherry. I'm a, an artist from San Diego, and Matt Hoyt was my partner and in a lot of projects, a lot of video projects, a lot of pranks, <laughs> a lot of stuff. Most, most of our projects were things that we would talk about for a while before we ever 
started them. Like when we did Antarctica, huh? We talked about that for years. Just like coming up with stories and scenarios with Talk Talk too. I was given a space at Bread and Salt to do whatever I wanted, just have an art show, whatever. But I decided I wanted to build a talk show set for Matt to be a talk show host. So that's what we did. That's how most of the last 25 years have gone. Almost daring each other to do something extremely stupid and seeing if we could pull it off. As far as his impact, it's, it's immeasurable. My name is Suzanne Hoyam. I live in San Diego. I've done some writing and performing in the past. This is kind of a rough one for, I think, most people in San Diego. He was a really good guy. Um, he was the kind of person that you would run into two or three times a year, and his face would light up when he saw you. And he would come over and catch up and remember details of your life that you had spoken with him last time and you always left that conversation better. Hello, my name is Tim Piles from 91X Loudspeaker and I probably met Matt Hoyt in the late 90s, early 2000s through the Blackheart procession, but I'd actually been to his club in El Cajon called the Soul Kitchen in the mid 90s and I remember his band Turkey Mallet here, you know, he's done so much other stuff for for art and culture in San Diego and comedy. Um, of course, running an amazing restaurant like Starlight. And uh, I've been at a loss for the last few days with the loss of Matt Hoyt because he really did so much for San Diego. He raised the bar for a lot of people. That's a big void we're missing now. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed. What else can you say about a guy that is a legend? Don't forget Matt Hoyt. Those were remembrances of Matt Hoyt, a San Diego artist, filmmaker, and co-owner of Starlight. What would a KPBS summer music series be without Latin jazz? In this installment, we welcome a musician who's been making Barrio Logan move to the music for over 17 years. Trumpet player Bill Caballero hosts his Latin jazz jam every week, and people from all over San Diego come to enjoy live music in Barrio Logan. Every performance is unique, with an endless roster of musicians, both seasoned and beginners alike, performing together on the same stage. And it's with this welcoming approach that Bill Caballero created a space for the community that's built to last, a place for people of all ages to gather in Barrio Logan and experience the joy of music. Bill Caballero joins us today, but let's begin with his performance of La Bruja. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Bill Caballero with La Bruja, performed at Garage Mahal in Pacific Beach. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. And can you tell us the other musicians who played with you on that piece? Yes, on guitar I had Ignacio Arango. On bass I had Omar Lopez. Timbal I had Giancarlo Anderson. And on congas I had David Castaneda. Now, as I said, every Thursday is your Latin jazz jam in Barrio Logan. Can you tell us what is it all about? What can people expect when they go there? For me, on my end, is smiling faces. Everybody's just happy at the jam. They can expect to see some seasoned musicians, and then they're very uh, supportive of the um, not-so-seasoned musicians. Every jam's different. I never know what's going to happen and how it's going to be, but in the end, it's always pretty cool. How did this begin, and how have you kept it going? It began with Brent Beltran, a good friend of mine, uh, hounding me for a year to start it, and I didn't want to do it because jam sessions have a tendency to like have a short uh, shelf life people get all excited and then three weeks later if it's if it's not packed they close it down and i knew that if i did it i was going to be committed to it because i didn't want to quit so i just didn't want to commit to that and he finally talked me into it and uh 18 years later i'm still doing it just out of uh stubbornness (laughs) <laughs> you let players of all skills, they get up on the stage with you. That's that's really unusual. Why do you do that? Because my jam is inclusive, not exclusive. At my jam, I feel that it's one place where everybody's equal, no matter how good or how bad you are. Like my teacher in college told me, everybody's got their voice. So I just enjoy it, you know. Uh, everybody gets up and, and uh, for instance, Omar Lopez, who played bass, He was attending my jam when he was just a kid, a freshman at San Diego State. Those guys come back and they go, thanks for letting me sit in. Thanks for letting me, you know, start learning the the ropes and all that stuff. And it it comes back to pay me back. Omar plays with the Whalers, you know. He doesn't have to play with me. And I'm very lucky to have him play. And right on down the line, uh, all the various musicians I use, I just like the fraternity, the brotherhood, if you will, of musicians hanging out. Yeah, but is it difficult to perform with beginners? I mean, how do you keep the music enjoyable for the audience? A very good question. Very good question. That's very important to me as well. I use a veteran band every time. So the house band, they're not beginners. They know what they're doing. So they provide support to the ones that don't know what they're doing so much. I do, you know, a little bit of uh, directing and stuff like that, but... Pretty much having the uh, veteranos in the uh, house band is what gets me through with whoever sits in. Now, a lot of musicians spend time uh, releasing albums, promoting their work, but your focus exclusively is on live music and performing. Why is that? Because the tape don't lie. Uh, I don't know to be honest with you, because uh, I do make a living at this. Not a a great living, but uh, I'm doing what I want to do. And uh, I just don't like the business side of it, really. And your song, Funky River, was recorded by San Diego band Surefire Soul Ensemble on an album that won a San Diego Music Award. Can you tell us about that, Bill? Yes, it was uh, my Lee Morgan days. Uh, the song, if you ever listen to Lee Morgan, you'll hear Lee Morgan in that, in that song. And the guys liked it, and we recorded it. Let's hear Funky River 
by Bill Caballero, recorded by Surefire Soul Ensemble. Well, your music certainly sounds great recorded, <laughs> so I'm wondering, <laughs> what is it about the live and the live show that you love so much? The interaction, as a matter of fact, if at all possible, like when I used to play at uh, Border X and various other places, I like the band's proximity to be as close to the people as possible. There's energy that goes back back and forth when you do that. The band feels it, the people feel it. And it's a real turn on, you know, when you're recording and stuff like that. I really respect the, the people that record because you're in an empty room and you're trying to recreate what you do live in an empty room. It's just very difficult. And I like playing off of the energy of the, of the audience and being as close as possible to them as well. Now, you've been a session musician when big acts come through town. What are some of those memorable performances you've been a part of? Oh, uh, Benny Holman, he had the contract for that stuff when I was in the union. So, like, we always provided horn sections for, like, uh, The Temptations, The Stylistics, Natalie Cole, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. It was always fun and to meet those guys and hang out with them a little bit and stuff like that. And, you like, especially The Temptations, we did them, God, about eight times. So, after a while, they get real friendly with you and stuff like that. It, it's kind of cool. And you work with the San Diego Opera for the program Words and Songs, and that's where you bring together young musicians from different neighborhoods. And I would imagine that that's really rewarding. What, what, what do you feel about the most rewarding part of that project? Oh, I love the maniacos. Working with the kids, they really think I'm good, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's a go. Um, and, and, and they see that a professional musician is just a regular person. There's no airs or any pretentiousness put on. And I, I just get a kick out of the kids and they're really good. Another thing I like about it is the diversity. Kids from uh, Point Loma High School, kids from Hoover High School, black, white, Asian, brown. It's just all mixed together and everybody's respectful of each other. I'm happy. Tell us about the song we're going to hear next, Wachiwada. Wachiwada is uh, Cal Jader, I believe. It's like a standard with regard to uh, Latin jazz or 
I've kind of moved to my own word, homey jazz lately, mixing in oldies with Latin jazz, and that works real well. But uh, Watch You Wide is a pretty cool song, has some nice lines, and it only has one chord. So, God, anybody can play on that song. That was Wachiwata performed by Bill Caballero at Garage Mahal Sessions in Pacific Beach. We're going to hear one more song, Harvest Moon. We're going to go out on it, performed by Bill Caballero. What is it about this song that makes it one of your fan favorites? It's kind of a Latinized version of a song that people didn't see coming. You know, they're like listening to going, oh, my God, that's Harvest Moon. They're doing Harvest Moon. And uh, what do you call it? I like that. It's kind of like a little surprise song. And and. To be truthful with you, uh, I'm going to probably start doing more of that, taking uh, songs that are kind of popish and Latinizing them. Bill, thanks so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bill Caballero performs his jazz jam every Thursday, 7 to 10 p.m. at Hot Mess Cafe in Barrio Logan at Thorn Street Brewery Complex.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.